Hello, sweet listeners. You're about to hear an episode I recorded with Lizanne Cobalt Chrome about the famous horror film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? This was a juicy two-hour episode, and I'm offering the first hour free for your enjoyment, but if you want the whole discussion, you'll have to sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgutsjello. And yes, sometimes I am starved for bonus content, so this will happen. (laughs) So if you want the whole experience, definitely go sign up there or through Spotify subscriptions. But on my Patreon, I offer a whole host of bonus content, including bonus episodes, a newsletter with my recommendations of the month and reading, music, film, and kink, and live screenings with a chat attached hosted by yours truly. And I now have a Discord and a book club that's starting next month. We have our own little community on the server, and I hope you'll join us. That's patreon.com slash girlsgutsgiallo. Enjoy the show. You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Sister, sister, oh so fair, why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene, an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered, a telephone that has become an object of fear, a supper tray that will not be touched, a window barred against the world, a hammer, a mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre. Adventure to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. We can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense. Hello again, this is Annie Rose Malamed and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. And today I'm here with my friend Lizanne Cobalt-Chrome. Hi, Lizanne. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. We've been talking about having you on for a minute now, ever since we met when I was in New Orleans. So Mm -hmm. before we get into it, uh, Lizanne, who lives in the spookiest city in America, uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So um, I am a leather dyke degenerate. Um, who lives in New Orleans, um, also known as Bulbancha. Um, and I am an artist and a witch and a sex educator here. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, pre-pandemic, I hosted a or co-hosted a monthly movie night called Queer Root Films. And our tagline is where we show our friends the movies that made us gay. And um, I put together this series with my friends Tylin and Sally. And yeah, we would just meet up um, at a regular location every month and show gay-ass movies. And it was really fun. And we are kind of looking for a new home for it, for when it feels safe to gather in person again. But, um, you know, that's obviously kind of like a little bit in the ether right now as we're kind of working on feeling more settled so yeah amazing yeah I was once upon a time supposed to <laughs> supposed to uh, go to one of your film um, screenings and back then we had talked about doing whatever happened to baby Jane and mm-hmm. I want to, before I forget, I think what would actually be better is if you spoke without holding it, because the levels are coming in too hot. So maybe, can you test it out okay. now? Yeah. That's better. So actually. How it- yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> I like made a big okay. deal out of you holding it. Now it's too loud. <laughs> yeah. So that dream is finally coming to fruition. And today we are talking about Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, directed by Robert Aldridge and starring, of course, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in one of the most epic horror films of all time. So, Lizanne, tell me about why you picked that movie back then. Tell me about when you first saw it, what you felt. I believe you had a performance art piece. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so when I was growing up, I wasn't really allowed a lot of current media. Um, you know, I don't know, I kind of grew up in a weird, kind of conservative house. But, you know, I think like, like a lot of conservative families um, with parents who were like very inconsistent in like what was bad and what was good. So pretty much anything of modern times, they were like, we're not into it, no. But it meant that I also wasn't really monitored in regards to like other things. So anything that was really accessible from like the public library or anything that would show on the like Saturday afternoon matinee, like movie on the TV, things like that weren't monitored. And they were like, oh, if it's old and black and white, watch whatever. But that meant that I really just like watched everything um and my favorite was really like suspense and noir and so I really um kind of came up watching like a lot of old horror movies so that is kind of my first my first love of horror um and then the first time I saw whatever happened to baby Jane um I was probably like 12 and it was one of the movies that was being shown on like the Saturday afternoon old movie, you know, on the TV and kind of immediately I was like transfixed and became obsessed with it. It also started a lifelong obsession with Betty Davis, who is just fabulous. Um, And also, yeah, this led to a very early performance art piece that I um, did unprompted in my middle school cafeteria. Um, Yes, I have always been a bit much. Um, (laughs) I mean, same. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, So, yeah, this was like conservative rural Wisconsin um, middle school. It's actually kind of amazing that I didn't get bullied more than I did. <laughs> um, but the, and I wasn't even thinking about it as performance art because I don't even think I had that term. I, you know, hadn't conceptualized that yet. But I knew that I was moved to do, make some art about it. And um, God, I, I like wore this 
seven, like this leotard that was my mom's from the seventies and this like long black skirt and like the black purple lipstick that was like the Halloween drugstore lipstick, because that was what you wore when you were goth in the nineties. Right. So this is like mid nineties. And I kind of came into the cafeteria twirling dancing like baby Jane does at the end of the movie (laughs) on the beach. (laughs) Right. So I'm kind of doing that, like um, spacing out twirling, like more childlike thing and just start asking random people, but where's baby Jane? Whatever happened to baby Jane? And people are like, what the fuck? Right. And then at some point I like climb on top of one of the tables and start like screaming and like in a very distressed way, like, but whatever happened to baby Jane? (laughs) And like, yeah, I, I don't know. And it just kind of like devolved from there. And I don't really remember, I think it was mostly just ignored, um, but like, yeah, that was definitely, I mean, yeah, I was like, it's really no surprise that I am who I am today when I was doing that in middle school, right? Yeah, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty homosexual of you. Uh, yeah. I yeah. I mean I did shit like that too like I became obsessed with the Phantom of the Opera and uh, I had like a Christine Daae performance that I did in school I don't ex- don't know how I wasn't more bullied also right yeah yeah uh, so I completely get it I believe I even tried to put on a production of the Phantom of the Opera at some point and um all of the girls were very annoyed because I kept uh, giving them parts as men because I didn't want any boys in the play. So yeah. it's there's a lot of gay gay stories from my childhood <laughs> where right? I'm like, it's just so oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just so hard when you're tiny and gay and just like need to get it out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you're seeing these like insane women on screen and you're like okay that's me um which I think is what a lot of gay men did (laughs) when they saw this movie um Mm -hmm. I would assume most people listening to this have seen whatever happened to baby Jane but if you don't know whatever happened to baby Jane is a psychological horror thriller that pioneered this genre called hagsploitation uh, and Lizanne, you had also said that it was. Oh called... yeah, I love the term psycho bitty. Um, is also another genre that it's kind of known known under. Nice. Yeah. It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's a subgenre of exploitation films in which over the hill old, formerly glamorous older actresses were kind of poached to because they could not land the kind of parts that they could anymore. They were kind of poached by these B-movies to play these insane women who terrorize the other characters. Um, Kirla Janice... Yeah, because... Oh, go ahead. I mean, there's there's, there's nothing scarier than um, a old, ugly woman, right? Yeah, what could be scarier than a hot old lady? (laughs) (laughs) I was also like watching this with my girlfriend. I was like, these men, when we were watching Feud, because uh, the Ryan Murphy series, for those of you who don't know, uh, is about the legendary quote unquote feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford uh, and about the making of this film. And as I was watching this with my girlfriend, I was kind of just like, these men are so weak for not think for thinking these women are ugly. Like they're so gorgeous yeah Yeah. and sexy and powerful so Mm -hmm. you know anyway whatever like some you know not everybody can be a lesbian one of the most (laughs) powerful beings in the world um (laughs) have you read the book house of psychotic women did we talk about that before oh we have not talked about it before but i have and 
yeah. Uh, yeah, no, of course, that's our Bible. Uh, Kirla yeah. Janice <laughs> proposes in that movie that Sunset Boulevard is the real, like, genesis of this genre, which I would agree with. That's another favorite movie of mine. Oh, uh, mine too. Oh, yeah. Love it. So good. And we've had a lot of gay women on this podcast who idolize Norma Desmond, of course. Uh, director Robert Aldridge paired Joan Crawford and Betty Davis to kind of like breathe new life into the career, their careers, and it was a very successful formula. Yeah, and I mean, I was shocked when I was reading up about this film to discover that um, even when this film was proposed, the studio execs didn't even want Betty Davis or Joan Crawford in the film because they thought they were too old. And I was like, so these women are in their early to mid 50s. Which is young, the st- by the way. Yeah, which is yeah. really young. And the studio execs are like, mm, I don't know. There's they're supposed to be these like old scary crones, but I think these women are too old for it. Which is totally nuts. Were they supposed and, to be 30? But, well, that's the thing is that they had originally pro- were proposing um, actresses in their late 30s, which was like already pushing it. But yeah, then the, um, Aldridge was like, actually, you're full of shit. And he he was the one that really pushed to like make sure that more age appropriate actresses got the roles. Which, again, is nuts to me that there even needed to be a discussion about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Feud in the series Feud, it kind of portrays, and you know, obviously Ryan Murphy takes a lot of liberties, but it does kind of portray Robert Aldridge as um, the least sexist of the men in this story. Uh, I won't go as far as to say he's like an ally to women or anything, but he's clearly like kind of disgusted by the other men around him and their bullshit. Um, So I don't know if that's true or not, but I would assume that Ryan Murphy kind of called from the actual things that were happening. So like Robert Aldridge pushing for these two older women would fit in line with that narrative. It's apparently the actress's relationship didn't actually turn sour until they starred in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. In 1962, uh, some yeah. people dispute that, claiming that the legendary feud started when Betty Davis got a little too cozy with her co-star, Francho Tone, in the 1935 movie Dangerous, despite Tone being engaged to Joan Crawford. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I again, in the reading that I've done about the, these two women and what was going on in their lives... Yeah, I think that a lot of the earlier feud was just played up by the like gossip columnists, you know, trying to stir things up and the studio execs who, you know, obviously always want, um, you know, some sort of side drama to be happening because it gets people more interested in whatever films they're putting out. Um, but I think ultimately, at least earlier, like before um, Baby Jane was made, I think it was really just the fact that these were both like really strong-willed women who were very career focused and both of them like knew what they wanted in this career and like pushed to get it and I mean, you know, also coming out in other parts of their lives, they definitely both like had control issues, but I mean, whatever, that's what it takes to be a powerful woman, especially in that, you know, in that profession. So, you know, I'm not going to fault them on that, but I think it was mostly just, yeah, men around them trying to stir things up because they're like, oh, these bitchy women, you know, and they were trying to like point them at each other because otherwise really these women were just like fighting with the men around them and the men like couldn't handle it. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds correct. I mean, it sounds like what it kind of in the is so in the book, um, 
about that the Ryan Murphy series is based on called Divine Feud by Sean uh, Considine. Have you read that? No, I have not. Um, I only just started it, but it does sound like a lot of this was uh, they were kind of pushed into hatred of each other um, Mm -hmm. by gossip columnists and execs or whatever. Um, I did want to talk about Crawford and Davis's respective careers. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't have time to do like a whole retrospective here, but uh, I wanted to plug the podcast. You must remember this, uh, which is a wonderful film podcast uh, has a very in-depth series on Joan Crawford. um, And as well as one on the rivalry between uh, Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons. So check that out um Joan Crawford <coughs> oops, sorry Joan Crawford was born Lucille Faye Lesore in San Antonio Texas which always kind of surprises me because that's such a stagey name it's more stagey than Joan Crawford uh yeah right yeah to Thomas Lesore and Anna Johnson on March 23rd 1906 to which I said in my notes is that an Aries and you responded Aries yeah <laughs> So they're actually both Aries. Um, yeah. And I thought that that was interesting because there is a movie called Sign of the Ram. Have you seen that? No. And uh-huh. it's very good. And it's from uh, 1948. And it has an actress in it named Susan Peters who um, was disabled and using a wheelchair and actually stars in the film as a disabled woman who is a very uh, crazy manipulative Aries. So I thought that was a very interesting connection just because of the two Aries women in this. And um, also there's so much about disability in this film as well. So I just wanted, I don't oh. think there's any actual connection, but I, I just wanted to note it. Um, yeah. So... Lucille fell in love with dancing, uh, making it her lifelong goal to become a professional dancer. And she got the chance in 1924 when she was spotted by producer Jacob J. Schubert while performing in Detroit. And as her career started to take off, she changed her name to Joan Crawford and she was contracted by MGM. Her career skyrocketed. She became a major star, cementing that status in 1945 when she won Best Actress for Mildred Pierce. Um, She was a major star, but she was also kind of seen as like a glamour girl, like, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, someone who does like melodramas and women's pictures. But Mildred Pierce was when she really gained professional acclaim. This success did not mean... Uh, much as misogyny against older women is rampant in Hollywood. So she thought that this would take her career to new heights and it didn't really. Um, As the rest of Crawford's career continued, she found herself in roles that saw her playing single, independent middle-aged women. By the late 50s and early 60s, her acting career was pretty dead. And at that point in her life, she was four years removed from her fourth husband Alfred Steele's death, who was the you know major CEO of Pepsi Cola, uh, and nearly penniless to the point of accepting movie roles that some fans would consider beneath her, and hence ba- Baby Jane. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah. So Betty Davis was in a very similar position. She was born Ruth Elizabeth Davis on April fifth, nineteen oh eight, in Lowell, Mass- Massachusetts. So also an Aries, so Clash of the Rams in in this. Um, Davis became interested in acting in 1926, and with a few years of studying acting under her belt, she auditioned for George Cougar's theater company in Rochester, New York. Um, And even though Cougar was less than impressed by her audition, he still gave her an acting job as a chorus girl. And in 1930, Davis traveled to Hollywood for a screen test at Universal Studios, where she apparently failed miserably, but was kept on as a stand-in for actors during screen tests. Screen tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one thing that always strikes me with Betty Davis is that so much 
of like talk about her from both executive like studio execs and like uh, movie writers and critics alike is that everyone always wanted to talk about how like make a point out of how not beautiful she is um which i think is also kind of crazy um but they're like oh you know she's she's not really beautiful but there's there's just still something alluring about her um so i think that this is for me it's just misogyny and the narrow cultural beauty standard that really fucks with people's understanding of attraction and so again these people in charge were like i don't know this woman she like looks kind of weird but like i am still transfixed by her and she's hot (laughs) yeah and they're just like so confused about it and i'm like why are you stressing so much she's just like really hot and powerful obviously you don't want to look away just like stop trying to fucking pick it apart right yeah no absolutely (laughs) and she was very known for her like bug eye look that she would do um Mm -hmm. she had very big eyes universal eventually cast her in her debut film the bad sister very on theme for this month Believing that she had potential, uh, the studio had Carl Lamell of the Lamell family renewed Davis's contract for about three months, only to cancel it a year later. Disheartened by the entire experience, Davis was mentally prepared to return to New York to continue acting on stage, which is also much more accepting of um, diversity in terms of attractiveness uh this was her plan until she got a call from actor george arliss asking her to take the lead role alongside him in the 1932 warner brothers film the man who played god and after finally getting her big break warner brothers signed her to a five-year contract yeah so she is best known for her um, unsympathetic and bitchy and sometimes campy characters um I think her very early films, they tried to make her more into a glamour girl, but, you know, that was just not her. She wasn't really into it. Um, She loved playing complicated villains and um, also um, was really into employing physical changes to her features to play, like, more in character. You know, like, she... um, when she was like playing a sick character, she just wanted to look ill and would do like actually did her own makeup for the movies to like look even worse than, you know, was originally in the script because she wanted that realism. Um, and so, you know, we take this for granted now with like actors wearing prosthetics or, you know, changing their body for different roles. But that was actually pretty rare at the time yeah Um, that's and that was part of her success in whatever happened to baby jane is that she's not afraid to look ugly um and that's why it's such a horrifying and shocking film (laughs) so betty davis rises to fame and despite all the success davis had earlier in her career by this time by 1962 it kind of had all gone away uh betty davis was in the same predicament as joan crawford alone and desperate for an acting gig. So, Lizanne, I wanted to ask you, how are these women different? And how are they the same? Yeah. So, I mean, I think they are different really more in their kind of um, their methods in how they kind of push themselves forward. Um, so... Betty Davis was, like, known as being really combative with, like, everyone around her, um, really holding herself to a really high standard and holding people around her to a really high standard, um, but would, um, yeah, just be really aggressive and kind of always push for the way she saw things, like, that she thought they should be. Um, And Joan Crawford kind of went a little bit more of a backdoor route like you know she she also you know wanted to like pushed herself to be at the top of you know at the top of her form and you know really wanted things to be a certain way but I think she did it a little more in like 
sweetness and manipulation um, to kind of get what she wanted ultimately. So they were, you know, they both had really high standards and both were always pushing themselves, you know, to, to be the best they could be. They just had like, one did it a little bit more from the side and one did it a little more aggressively from the front, I think. Yeah, and I'm also thinking just of the roles they chose, too. Like, Betty Davis just wasn't afraid to play a villain. Like, her most famous movie is all about Eve. Um, Ugh, yeah, where she won the Oscar, and it's yeah. because she's not afraid to just be a horrible bitch. Um, <laughs> and Joan Crawford was a lot more controlled about her image, mm-hmm. even though, you know... If you believe Mommy Dearest, which I do, she was probably quite abusive. So, I mean, they probably both were, to be honest. But it's uh, Joan Crawford was very much about hiding that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they both also famously had, you know, multiple husbands and multiple kids and estranged children and Mm -hmm. children written out of their wills and I'm sure they were both a horror to be around absolutely yeah right absolutely (laughs) yeah apparently the pre-production of whatever happened to baby Jane initially went really smoothly but the feud Mm. started when Davis suspected that director Robert Aldridge and Crawford was sleeping together Davis only accepted the role when both Aldridge and Crawford vehemently denied the allegation. Uh, The bickering continued when Davis mischievously installed a plethora of Coca-Cola machines around the set that irritated Joan Crawford because she was uh, married to the CEO of (laughs) Pepsi-Cola. So Davis (laughs) knew this and just wanted to get under her skin, right? Um, There was like a lot of rumors at the time that were really played up by the press about their fights on set. Um, There were multiple instances of them in some way or another trying to harm each other. (laughs) The first incident that occurred was when Davis allegedly kicked Crawford in the head during one of their more violent scenes. And to retaliate, Crawford wore hidden weights under her costume uh, in a scene where Davis's character was forced to drag Crawford's character's lifeless body across the room. And she would purposely flub her lines over and over in order to have Davis redo the heavy lifting that the scene required. So a lot of incidents like that. Uh, the mix of pettiness and downright cruelty really set the tone for how the film was received by audiences because the real life rivalry was baked into the fictional rivalry of the plot. And that's part of what is so important about this film and how you can't really um, uh, really appreciate the full scope of it until you know that, even though it does stand on its own. So when Davis was nominated for an Academy Award for her portrayal of Baby Jane Hudson, which was pretty cool considering it was really kind of dismissed as like a B-movie, um, Crawford made it her duty to vigorously campaign against her. <laughs> and in order to exact her revenge, she asked every single actress that was nominated if she could accept their award on their behalf if they were unable to attend the ceremony. <laughs> Anne Bancroft, who was nominated for The Miracle Worker, could not attend and actually won that night. And Crawford accepted her award. If you watch the acceptance, she's pretty clearly elated that she got to be on stage at the Oscars and not Betty Davis. So they tried to kind of recapture the magic a few years later with the film Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, um, which Joan Crawford eventually was written out. Um, She was just too difficult to work with. There, There were too many con. There was too much conflict. Um, but, you know, that all of that has sort of cemented whatever happened to Baby Jane as a very legendary horror film. I believe I first saw it um, when it was on a hun- uh, Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments back in the early aughts. Mm. So mm-hmm. I was like making it my duty when I was a middle schooler to watch all of the films on that list. 
So that was uh, that was one of them. And it's still it's still fucking scary. So let's get into it. Let's start. Can you start us off with how this movie begins? Sure. I just wanted to make a note. I love that we were both these weird middle schoolers, like running around with the affects of these like Hollywood actresses in I their know. 50s. <laughs> I could not wait to be like a crone. I mean, still yeah. goals. Yeah, exactly. That's, like, that's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the movie. Um, so it begins, like, it's, so it's all black and white, and it begins with a plate that just says 1917, um, and it basically show where we enter in on a vaudeville, um, vaudeville stage. Um, actually, the very opening scene has nothing to do with the plot, and I just think it's really funny and creepy. The first image we see is, like, a crying child looking at a clown doll that also is crying. Yeah, the clown has like a tear yeah. falling down it. I mean, I just couldn't help but think of like any kind of like symbology of the crying clown. <laughs> and I mean, that really fits with the whole movie too because it's funny and sad. So yeah. it's, I mean, and baby Jane is like, a sad clown you know like she is got almost clownish makeup and mm-hmm. you know is putting on a front of being this like you know happy-go-lucky girl but it's like deranged <laughs> so yeah. yeah I just thought that was I felt I was like there has to be a reason they included this clown crying at the beginning <laughs> And then Baby Jane performs for an audience. She's a vaudeville <laughs> performer while Blanche, her sister, kind of sulks off stage. What is Baby yeah. Jane's act, Lizanne? Oh, my God. Yeah, so she's probably, what, maybe five or six, do we think, in this? I think so. Or maybe even seven. Yeah, but, like, so this little girl on stage and she's singing and there's her father is accompanying her on piano and so she's kind of singing just like schlocky songs of the times and but there's this whole audience of moms and their kids that are there to see her and you know we come in on when everyone is clapping and they're like encore encore and then this little boy stands up and you're like is he like an audience plant or like what but he stands up and he's like, I've written a letter to daddy, which is like the name of, I guess, her like her hit her, like, song, her hit song. And so then she sings this song. It's so creepy. Yeah, it's very kinky and, it's, and creepy. Yeah, it's like this little girl talking about writing a letter to her dead father. Mm-hmm. I've like, <laughs> instead of a stamp, I put kisses. <laughs> The oh, yeah. address is heaven above. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fucked up. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so fucked. Um, and, but like the audience is eating it up. They love it. Just love it. And then at some point, like her dad gets up and then she's dancing on the stage with her father. And it's gross. <laughs> it's gross. Yeah. yeah. But so, we're supposed to be like, oh, it's just so heartwarming and family friendly. Family friendly stuff is just is perverted. I'm like, do they even know what they're doing? Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's not here for it. Even I, I have in the note. I know now it's her dad, but I forgot when I was watching the movie. I was like, ew, is that her dad? <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> It's pretty creepy. Um, we already kind of you talked a little bit about the in your notes the juxtaposition of the two girls of Blanche mm. and Jane. Yeah, so Jane has like the blonde curls, and she's in her like pretty frilly white dress, and then uh, Blanche is like 
plain and brunette and straight hair with bangs and she's wearing a plain dress and she's just off in the wings watching her sister on stage hollywood loves like pitting a blonde against a brunette those are the only two women that exist are (laughs) white women and one has blonde hair and one has brown hair uh they love that and Mm -hmm. Mom and Blanche are obviously kind of bonded, um, whereas Daddy and Baby Jane are more bonded. Mm -hmm. And Jane is a huge brat already. Um, Oh, yeah. And Blanche is kind of already plotting her revenge. Oof, yeah. So it kind of wraps up when, you know, everyone's... All the audience are waiting at the stage door, wanting to maybe get an autograph from Jane or something. Um, but, you know, Jane bursts out the side door with her father and immediately is like, I want ice cream. I want this. I want that. And is just like throwing this tantrum in front of everybody. Um and even at some point screams, I make the money so I can have what I want. <laughs> Which also, she's kind of not wrong. I mean, yeah, I kind of stan her. I mean, <laughs> she's, you know, her mom. And then the mom says to Blanche, I hope that you will be nicer to your sister than she was to you when you get older. Please don't forget you know, like what she did for you. And Blanche is like, I won't forget. You bet I won't forget. I know. And that's like, that's our first moment where we're like, is this one evil too? Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, the other thing is in this, in the beginning of this, you sort of just get like, baby Jane is a brat, but she's not particularly terrible to Blanche or anything. And, um, yeah. You sort of get the idea that Blanche, it's not just that baby Jane is a brat, it's that she's jealous of mm-hmm. of her and her success. So yeah. now it's 1935, we're the Hollywood movie lots, and these movie executives are watching a baby Jane Hudson film, so she's got to be like in her early 20s now, and they hate it. Um, but Betty Davis looks gorgeous in this <laughs> in this footage. Absolutely. Yeah. It is really funny, too. I did have to look up the movies because I was like, I don't like she looks gorgeous. And like, I don't think these are especially bad, but whatever. But it turned out that the movies that they're watching, it's actually um, still or um, clips from both the Parrot Shoot Jumper and Ex Lady, which were both made in 1933, that Davis made in 1933. And so they were early films when she was still being kind of pushed as like Glamour Girl. And she hated both of those films. Um, and she thought that they were um, just pap. So I kind of liked that they used movies that Davis herself hated. I liked that, that too. Yeah. Because she wasn't even, she wasn't successful until later um and then the execs right they're talking about how jane is awful um but what is it what is it in blanche's contract though oh yeah so that in blanche's contract it's that for every movie blanche makes jane must be given another movie so they're make so yeah so one can't make a movie without the other one yeah so it's extremely codependent already (laughs) and uh the executives say that she's incredible blanche is incredibly successful and there's really no reason for her to carry her sister around um and then one of them says but she's never going to forget those early years and what her sister did for her so yeah and we're like is that really is that really it okay Right. Yeah. And then there's also hinting at the executives talking about how Jane is an alcoholic. Um, Mm. And Mm. yeah, I don't know. This just like kind of resonated with me because I was like, this is a very like toxic relationship (laughs) on both ends here. Um, 
and then we kind of move into um the the incident so oh well they do i think that there's like even a little foreshadowing here that the studio execs are like oh this big car taking Mm. up this this parking space like who the hell is this and they're like oh that's blanche's big car you know and you know then they start talking about the Blanche is hosting another wild party that they're all going to go to. And she's starting renovations on some mansion that she just bought from that belonged to Valentino. And I love how like just throughout Valen Valentino is often used as a reference point for like the epitome of old Hollywood glamor. Like he's also referenced in sunset Boulevard. Um, yeah, so I just think that right. that's like a funny little note that whenever that in movies when they people want to evoke a certain glamour, a lot of times they'll reference Valentino, which they do here. Yeah, so this was a little yeah. that Valentino is like dancing on tango on the tile floor. Norma Desmond says mm-hmm. in Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Um, yeah, that movie is very much in conversation with this movie. Yeah. And then we get to the incident. Yeah. So then we cut to the car pulling up to a driveway gate. And one person in fancy dress gets out to open the gate. And then the car revs the engine and screams are heard. And you don't really know what's going on. And then the opening credits roll over a still of a car smashed into the gate and a broken baby Jane doll is in the driveway. Oh, and you also said, why the fuck did they have a baby Jane doll with them at the party? (laughs) Well, yeah, I was also like, oh, so we forgot to mention, but when baby Jane was on vaudeville, they were like selling life size. Oh, yeah, that's important. Yeah, they were so in the vaudeville act. They're selling these life size baby Jane dolls that are very creepy and they're only three twenty five. Um, yeah, but, and you could take your very own baby Jane home with you. Yes, and that doll is used a lot throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. so there's this like cracked baby Jane doll in the driveway. Um, I don't really have a lot of notes about the credits, except it says music by Duvall. And I was like, whomst? Who is Duvall? And I didn't actually have time to look it up, but um, – it, it I did like a cursory search and it looks like I'm going to have to look into it more. But I just was like, who the hell yeah. is this gay person? So <laughs> <laughs> now we get to um, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So I also love that they don't date it when it's supposed to be like present day. It just says yesterday. So it's like Los Angeles and a well-off suburb. Um, which, you know, was made in 1962. But I think that the fact that there's no date kind of offers that this film could be happening in your neighborhood, no matter what year it is, right? So it wants you to think about what kind of psychodrama is playing out in the house next door. Absolutely. You know, it makes it creepier. And like, we all, you know... There's always like some kind of wacky ass person in the neighborhood where you're like, what is up with them? They just seem really weird and creepy. So this movie like really invites you to like think about all of the madness that is going on behind those doors. Yes. And it really adds like there's this like cheery music and (laughs) there's this suburban housewife watching old movie on a TV and her teen daughter comes in. And that was actually Betty Davis's real daughter, B.D. Davis, Mm -hmm. who would later write a scathing uh, book about her mother, um, which her mother (laughs) would disown her over and they would never speak again. Very sad. Um, tell us about the film that's playing on TV. Yeah, so then this one is also um, an actual film that Crawford made in 1934 called Sadie McKee. Um, and it also stars Gene Raymond and also Francho Tone. 
remember him from the uh, little ruckus about maybe what started Crawford and Davis going, Mm -hmm. you know, having bad feelings about each other um, all the way back in the 30s. Um, And this movie is the kind of romantic drama that Crawford is really known for. And yeah, it's, it is a film that she loved and got really um, a lot of a a lot of acclaim for being a quote like woman's film, mm. right? So it was still like categorized in that way, but it was like the best of that genre. Yeah. So she the the wife is watching the housewife is watching this on TV, and the teen daughter comes in, and they kind of. That prompts them to gossip about Blanche and Jane, their neighbors, and why they live the way they do, neatly setting up the plot for us. Um, Basically, that they say that they're these two older women who live a very reclusive existence. Um, And baby Jane seems like a weirdo. And no one ever sees Blanche. (laughs) So... We we see we now meet Blanche and she's like watching her own film and critiquing it. She's in a wheelchair. Um, she's in yeah. this small. She's still very glamorous. Oh, very beautiful. Yeah. Um, and she's in this like kind of isolated room. Um, and Jane is sulking away downstairs. And this is when we the first time we see the eponymous baby Jane. like the real baby Jane not the child baby Jane but the baby Jane that we know who is played by Betty Davis so this is very iconic horror history can you describe to me how baby Jane looks oh yeah so she is kind of wearing this older style dress which makes her look kind of frumpy And she has, you know, the way she's holding herself, she's kind of slouched over. And when she is moving about the house, she kind of shuffles around and always has this kind of like grimace on her face. So already she's really playing up kind of being like, you know, like old and dowdy and. Uh, just kind of slamming around you know like she's like obviously not 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 a summer child um, right as I would say right (laughs) and not only that but she looks completely unhinged like she's got this crazy curly blonde wig on that she was wearing when she was a little kid and her vaudeville act she's got like crazy cakey (laughs) makeup with like a fake beauty mark She's an old woman wearing a little girl's outfit, and it looks really creepy. Uh, (laughs) So immediately, like, Blanche is this sympathetic, sweet woman in a wheelchair, um, and, um, you know, baby Jane is crazy and ugly. So, But then also there's this question of, like, what is keeping these sisters enmeshed right. in each other's lives? Right. Yeah. You know? And like at first when you don't know, you're kind of just like, okay, they're in like this toxic cycle where mm-hmm. now, you know, baby Jane has to take care of her sister because she's disabled. Um, yeah. Because they've always, that's what they've always done. They've always sort of begrudgingly taken care of each other. So Jane comes upstairs to torment Blanche. She like turns off the TV that Blanche is watching her own movie on and she tells her she's an idiot. Um, This is when you notice that Blanche has this large birdcage with a parakeet in the room. Uh, Like very obvious symbolism, like a bird in a cage. Um, Let's also I also want to talk a bit about the house itself because the house is very like Sunset Boulevard. It's very like dilapidated but really beautiful to LA home there's a lot of tile um it's very old fashioned yeah. though it like looks like it's yeah. from the 30s not the 60s 
exactly. It looks like it has not been updated in a few decades, and it's yeah, some sort of like crumbling grammar, uh, crumbling glamour, kind of surrounded by more, um, you know, shiny, shiny '60s, uh, you know, suburban architecture. Yeah, so they really stand out in the neighborhood. So the housewife from next door comes over with fresh flowers for Blanche. Um, Jane is obviously very pissed off and jealous. And we see from this interaction immediately that Jane keeps Blanche very isolated and won't let people meet her, even though Blanche would love to meet a fan. Um, We also see that there's a system in the house where Blanche buzzes and Jane brings her food on a tray. So they're not doing that well because they don't have uh, people to do that for them. So uh, Blanche asks about visitors when uh, baby Jane bring, brings her this tray and is obviously like very desperate to interact with people and Jane just mocks her like she's just so cruel. We immediately start sympathizing with Blanche because Jane is so crazy. So yeah. Blanche reminisces um Jane turns it back to her and her career and her failures. She's just like a raging wounded addict type. Um, Yeah. And really just like dragging the energy down no matter where she is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so then she um, grabs the bird cage from Blanche's room and then she says, well, I'm going to I'm going to go clean the cage. We're like, okay. Um, and then also at this time we meet Elvira, um, who is played by Maddie Norman. Is it Maddie? Or- I think it's Maddie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maddie Norman, um, who is a black woman who comes to clean the house a few days a week. Um, she is one of two black people in the entire script that has speaking lines. And um, she is the only person who gets murdered in the film yes indeed and i was watching the movie spider baby with my patrons last weekend um and Mm -hmm. that's from 1967 so it's around the same time period and there's one black actor in that film and he is murdered as well right at the beginning of the movie so there's this trope this is a these are like i I would characterize these as early horror films. Of course, they're not as early as like silent horror films. Um, But this is like really the sort of the beginning of the. um, And then, of course, there's all kinds of like atomic horror from the 50s. Um, And I'm sure that the trope of the black actor dying started before this. Um, But I was just kind of noting how. Um, we see this trope of the black character murdered in a horror film even as early as the 1960s. And I'm sure it was happening even earlier, even though I can't think of an example off the top of my head right now. Yeah, I would I would also say that these these kind of count as like the beginnings of like mo- more modern horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And definitely, especially these are films when we start to see more integration um, between white characters and black characters right um and so it's just shitty that they're like oh they're finally getting a speaking role and like are portrayed more as like full people oh but we're just gonna kill them then right yeah and she dies like elvira does have like a good robust part in this movie but yeah she still gets murdered Um, You know, spoiler, if you guys haven't seen whatever happened to Baby Jane. I just like to make fun of people who care about spoilers. Uh, (laughs) I was like, does it count as a spoiler if the movie's been out for like 60 years? I mean, some fucking freak on Twitter would tell you it is. But I don't know if like anyone normal thinks that. (laughs) Um, But that's most of my social interaction these days because of COVID. So... I def think I definitely I don't need to say def. I definitely think that because um, Elvira and Blanche start talking about selling the house and that Jane is going to react badly. And um, Elvira says she's sick and she's not getting any better. Um, and Dr. Shelby is brought up 
And I definitely think, you know, she's an addict and this is like the discreet 1960s way of talking about it. Um, so yeah, I like that you pointed that out because I definitely still was like, there's this vague sickness. And I'm right. like, what what are they diagnosing her with? Like, what is going on? It's yeah. So and I think they're like concerned about her drinking and also the fact that she's like so um, arrested development. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, they don't know what it is, but they're like, something's going on. Um, they yeah. just really don't have, like, the contemporary language for it. Mm-hmm. So Elvira clearly has, like, her own relationship with Blanche and dislikes Jane very strongly. And I, know, I love how they, like, glare at each other every time they pass each other yeah, in the hallway. Yes. <laughs> and Elvira shows Blanche that Jane has been going through her mail uh, she's really like the voice of reason reason here, and she can't fathom that Blanche isn't more upset at Jane's behavior, which is very telling. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, we're like, why are they so enmeshed? Uh, Blanche is such an enabler. Yes, exactly. She's a huge <laughs> enabler. And she has a ton of guilt and like her own bullshit, her own like codependent bullshit. And... Um, Elvira's just like, I don't know how much longer I can watch this. So Blanche asks Elvira if she thinks Jane is getting worse because she knows that she's selling the house. Um, And Blanche also reminisces about how Jane used to be. Um, And I think they're both stuck in the past in their own way. That's why she excuses so much of her sister's actions, like not only her own guilt, but like she's holding on to this idea of her as this vibrant young girl that, you know, had this career in front of her. Wow. What a movie. Woo. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to talk about this finally. Um, Oh my God. Yeah. What a delight. This is like, yeah. Hands down. One of my favorite films and, you know, always happy to, um, talk with another perverted leather dyke just about all of the weird inspirations um, that we've had in this in this lifetime. <laughs> Absolutely. It was super fun. Um, you know, if anybody feels inspired by our conversation about baby Jane roleplay, please tell me. I would love to hear about that. Uh, <laughs> I really think there's a lot of potential here. And oh, yeah. Lizanne, um, if you want people to, where could they find you on social media? Oh, um, yeah. So I I am on Twitter, um, just at Lizanne, L-I-Z-X-N-N. Um, so that one's pretty easy. And um, I'm also on Instagram at fem underscore disaster. Um, Instagram is usually where I will post like when I'm teaching or if I have events coming up that I'm doing. Um, cool. And you know where to find me. Girls Guts Giallo on Twitter and Instagram. I don't have a personal Instagram anymore. I was deleted. So you can just yes. find me at Girls Guts Giallo <laughs> wherever, uh, wherever you and you know where you can listen to me wherever you pod. You're listening to this. You don't need that. Um, and please follow my Patreon at patreon.com slash Girls Guts Giallo. There's a lot going on over there. I'm much more active on there than I am. Uh, I only have monthly main episodes right now, but I got bonus episodes and I have screenings and I now have a discord server and uh i also am starting a book club that's going to be on the discord server so amazing yeah i highly recommend the patreon too i love listening to all of your like um extra bonus podcast episodes are really good to you know when i have computer work days so i highly recommend that people check out annie's patreon thank you thank you for being so supportive and um thank you for joining me and i will see you all next month
my daddy says I can be just like her. Oh, how I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I were. Whatever happened to baby Jane? to baby Jane she didn't grow up she just grew old she was waiting for that big day that her daddy said would come that's what happened to baby Jane here's what happened to baby Jane she thought the world was at her feet that is what her daddy said was true but her daddy didn't always know Your daddy doesn't always know So for the past 40 years Her life has been nothing but tears Her daddy said something great was to be And she hoped and hoped and hoped and she hoped And that's what happened to baby Jane What happened to Jane? What really happened to Jane? And that's what happened to Jane. What really happened to Jane?